Welcome to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future with your host, John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Peter Walker, author of How Cycling Can Save the World. This is Technotopia. Technotopia is brought to you by Typewriter. Typewriter is your on-demand editor, and their amazing team of writers will make your book chapter, blog post, or email shine. Typewriter editors come from places like TechCrunch, Gizmodo, and the New York Times, and they offer low bulk rates for longer work. Check it out at typewriter.plus. That's typewriter.plus. Welcome back to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. Today I'm talking to Peter Walker. He's the author of How Cycling Can Save the World. Uh, Peter, how is cycling going to save the world? <laughs> it's an arguably slightly overambitious title. Sure. <laughs> Should should we not buy the book? Is are we gonna are we gonna get well, all the information just, right now? You know, I could have put on the cover how cycling will make the world healthier, happier, wealthier, more human friendly, and stuff like that. But that's a bit long for a book title. Yeah, sure. You can argue that in terms of the direct saving the world, then the one thing that kind of ties into that is the fact that greenhouse gas uh, emissions. If lots of people ride bikes, that makes a massive, massive uh, difference. I mean, one calculation was finding that if America um, had cycling levels on the kind of Danish or Dutch levels, then suddenly the overall greenhouse gas emissions for the country would be bound down by about 10%. And that would be a massive step, about 40% towards um, getting the US towards its 2020 um, greenhouse gas emissions targets, which may or may not exist in the future under President Trump. But that does actually make a big, big uh, difference. But that's only kind of one small part of it too. Okay, so first off, let's talk about your what the general premise is so the the general premise is that if we if we all move towards bikes uh like the the mechanical bikes or electric bikes what can we what can we really do to uh to to fix things well i mean it can be anything it can be uh e-bikes too and obviously the thing to stress it doesn't involve every single person or every single bit of freight moving onto a bike you know it's not to imagine this future where cars are simply not there it's just more than anything to point out that a lot of car journeys are really the kind of wrong sort of thing. They're made in congested cities and towns. They're often carrying a single person for a kind of very, very small distance, which could be covered in, say, 15 minutes by a bike. But you have to have the infrastructure where people feel safe. And then if you get that, you get all sorts of benefits come into play. I mean, one of the big ones, um, uh, which I think is, if anything, is going to be the trigger to get governments to act, is the fact that at the moment lots of countries, you know, and the US is particularly one of them, are facing what public health experts call a pandemic of um, illness caused by people not in, not living uh, active enough uh, lives. Sure. You know, because they very often just get into their car and drive to work, they drive to the, to the uh, shop. Um, and one of the things about exercise is that people only tend to do it, you know, every single day if it's integrated into their day. You can say, you know, you should go for a jog, you should walk in the park. And they might do that for a bit. But if cycling becomes the most convenient you know, way for them to do local trips and that's suddenly integrated into their life and that, you know, then the public uh, health benefits can be just huge, absolutely massive. All right. So that's that's very, very cool. So the what is the future uh, city look like in, in your mind? What what does it need to look like so that we can survive the, the next, I don't know, 40 years? Well, it's really interesting one. And one of the kind of paradoxes of the book is that even though the bike as a kind of invention hasn't fundamentally changed for about 120 or 30 years there is an argument that it's uniquely well suited for modern urban life because 
you know, we're living in an increasingly urbanized world. For the first time in uh, history, about half the world's population lives in urban uh, areas. And they're all seeing the same problems. They're seeing increased congestion, increased pollution. They're seeing more and more people being killed in road traffic uh, accidents, all that kind of stuff. And if you get more people onto bikes, then lots of those things start to change. And it becomes tricky when you look you know, further um, into the era where you might have driverless cars and uh, things like that. And I had a long chat with someone who is quite senior at uh, Sidewalk Labs. I don't know if you uh, know mm -hmm. them. They're this sure, kind of sure, sure. Google-connected company, which are trying to use solutions for tech to see how kind of urban living can be made, you know, better. And, and you know, this, this, this guy, he was, you know, first of all saying that anyone who claims to know what cities will look like in 20 years, you know, really can't be sure. But his idea is that you might have this kind of future where you have on-demand driverless cars which will you know whisk you from a suburb into the city centre in a journey that would have taken you know 40 minutes will now take 10 minutes which will kind of make the suburbs much more kind of um, open and much more appealing for people to uh, live in but his theory and he stresses it's a personal theory is that in the actual individual places where people live and work there's this kind of pent-up demand for um, a kind of place where people want to live so it means there's not kind of cars zooming past but there's you know bikes trundling around people walking pavement cafes things like that so his theory is you might have people maybe doing the kind of first or last mile on a bike or an uh, e-bike and then if they're doing a longer journey connecting onto something like um, a driverless car mm -hmm. and it's this slightly kind of Truman Show vision and frankly no one really seems to know but you know it's nice to think that the people who are reimagining you know the cities are thinking uh, along these lines Interesting. So the how can uh, how can some place like uh, like London? So London is traditionally really congested. How can a how can a place like London start um, supporting that sort of vision? In terms of getting kind of the infrastructure for bikes, I mean one of the things which almost makes it quite difficult for politicians to engage with is it's actually surprisingly low tech. The sorts of things you need are exactly what, for example, the Dutch and Danes and to a lesser extent the Germans have been doing for about 20 or 30 or 40 years. And it's quite a prosaic business of, first of all, separating out the bike traffic on busy main roads. You don't have this interaction of slow moving bikes and cars moving at 30, 40, 50 miles an hour. And that's nothing more high tech than just kind of curbs and you know traffic lights. But then you also have to do this even more low tech thing of trying to discourage people from driving their cars, mm -hmm. you know, short distances in uh, kind of smaller streets where it's not practical to have a separate lane. And a lot of that is really, really low tech. It involves having kind of permeable bollards on streets so bikes can fit through but cars can't. And so it makes it easier to, for example, you know, ride a bike to your kind of local uh, shop than to, uh, than to take the car. And there's an argument for saying that that's why sometimes solutions involving bikes you know, aren't really at the top of politicians' lists. They kind of love to be able to spend $100 million on a kind of new runway airport or a new train link. Whereas this kind of slightly prosaic business of kind of curbs and traffic lights is sometimes slightly lower down the list. Okay, so that's fascinating. So you would have a sort of permeable membranes between uh, the primary arteries, I guess you could say, and sort of a more... Um, sort of a more walker, biker-friendly boulevard and avenue sort of thing, right? Well, that's it. I mean, this is exactly what the kind of Danes and Dutch have been doing since about 1970s. Sure. Uh, 
and and what you're essentially trying to do is to eliminate the kind of most unequal uh, interactions and in transport terms you don't really get transport interactions which are more unequal than a kind of 70 kilo human on a bike you know doing 15 miles an hour coming up against a one-ton car and that's the thing you have to um, get rid of partly by having separated lanes on roads where there is busy fast traffic but also very very much slowing down the car traffic so on residential streets there is no reason for a car to have to go more than say 15 miles an hour and if you get that then suddenly the streets become much more safe and just much more kind of based around uh, humans what was it about germany and uh, and uh, amsterdam and all these places that encouraged the biking do you did you do any research on that uh, yes, I mean, you know, I travelled around to quite a few places. I went to the Netherlands, went to Denmark. Um, you know, I saw lots of the places that are kind of more at the beginning stages, like New York City and places like that. So I went to about, I don't know, half a dozen countries in Northern, spoke to people from lots of other places. And, you know, for someone who cycles in a big city where there's not a lot of planning for, for, for bikes, then, you know, being in some of these, like, citizen towns where they have had 30 or 40 years work on it, it's quite an eye-opening thing. So, for example, I was in uh, Odense, which in some ways is a kind of, you know, this is Denmark's uh, third biggest uh, town. It's about 200,000 uh, people. And in some ways, this is a kind of better model, for example, you know, towns and cities in the States than, for example, you know, Copenhagen or uh, Amsterdam, because it's quite a spread out place. It's got suburbs. Most people don't live in apartments. They live in houses. Lots of people own cars. And yet, over 30 years, they've painstakingly built the city such that riding a bike is incredibly uh, easy. And the, and, and the figures there are completely amazing. They claim that 81% of school kids uh, ride a bike to uh, school. And they claim the system is so safe that any school child should be able to cycle to school on their own from the age of uh, uh, six. You know, and it's, it's, it's not kind of magic, it's not culture. You know, yes, Denmark is uh, flat. But that's, you know, not really the main uh, reason. It's just a political choice was made about 30 years ago to make these changes. And it means that almost any other place could do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. I mean, we have in New York, for example, we have fairly uh, nice network of bike trails uh, that have just been put in. So you see them, you see them popping up. But I remember very recently down here in Bay Ridge, where I live, there, <laughs> the... the um, neighborhood neighborhood uh, drivers I guess were actually complaining that they were they didn't want to get tickets for for hitting bicyclists which was uh, which oh, was yes. pretty wild it was crazy it's the idea that yeah they're gonna get in more trouble if there's a bike lane and they hit a bicyclist than if they didn't which is which kind of puts the which kind of puts the onus on the bicyclist because they were in the way I guess which is kind of ridiculous right I mean, it's it's quite a complicated thing, and you know, this is the politically difficult stuff that, you know, motorized vehicles and car drivers have been the dominant form of transport for, certainly in most industrialized countries since about the 1950s, and people are very very wedded to their cars, and they're particularly wedded to their parking spaces. Um, you know, when you talk to commissioners for transport, they will always say that parking is the kind of subject that frightens them, you know, most mm -hmm. because people take it incredibly, incredibly personally. And people do see free on-street parking as being a kind of right. And, you know, yeah, if you look at it in this kind of objective sense, it's really, really odd. I mean, the inner London suburb where I live, um, uh, if you look at the um, 
figures for vehicle uh, ownership, about two thirds of uh, households don't have access to a car or a van. They don't actually uh, own one. And yet, if you look at the kind of streetscape, something like you know, 75% of the space is given over to cars. Mm-hmm. You know, driving cars, parking cars, um, and you know, the people on foot who are the you know the bulk of the people have just got this little space at the uh, uh, side, and it's quite difficult to get that mindset change. And it you know really you know you do have to say to people, you need to start thinking about cities from a slightly different point of view. Okay, what does your ideal city look like? What does the city look like in uh, in in a couple more years? We already discussed this, but I think uh, I think where do you want to live really? I mean, it's it's almost a tricky one because you know with the way technology is changing things, cities are going to be transforming an awful lot. And as much as anything, it's a kind of philosophical approach as. Uh, much as uh, anything else you want cities which are fundamentally built around the needs of human beings not these kind of speeding anonymous wanton uh, boxes and and you know there is always going to be a role for you know vehicles of you know some sort of kind in the sense that you can't really you know have you know you can get cargo bikes which can deliver a reasonable amount but they're never going to be able to like restock a big you know shop and some people will never be able to ride bikes. The kind of city I'd most like to live in would be one where basically people have a choice. Because at the moment, you know, I ride my bike around. But the people in London and lots of other big cities who get a choice to ride a bike are generally the ones who are, you know, happy or at least willing to mix it with the speeding traffic. So they tend to be disproportionately young, disproportionately male, disproportionately into, you know, biking as a kind of way of life. And I'd like to see a city where, for example, my son, who's uh, six now, in a couple of years' time, would be able to cycle half a mile or a mile down the road to see a friend, and for it to be completely normal and safe, and we would just know that he wouldn't have to put himself into any peril, because the bike routes would be not only safe, but they'd be obvious, and the entire infrastructure would be built around the needs of every single person. You know, And there is an argument that rebuilding cities like this is as much a case of kind of social justice as uh, anything else. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So, what uh, what else is on, on your radar in terms of uh, in terms of remaking cities? Uh, is it is is this is biking your uh, your primary peccadillo, or you have did you speak to anyone else about uh, what cities are going to look like? In terms of future cities, I mean, this book was very much kind of bike focused, but it was it was focused on that almost as a kind of means of seeing you know how urban life could be better within the future. It was almost like a kind of kind of a kind of paradigm through which to see it all and the interesting thing that i found is that certainly in the way that cities are starting to economically compete with each other it's turned around an awful lot in the last maybe 10 or 15 years because it used to be that cities were still very much stuck in the era of the 60s where kind of city councils felt that they had to have motor traffic which you know flowed very very quickly and they were kind of still building big roads and were thinking well you know if we kind of flatten a certain district of the uh, of the city, we can get four more lanes in there, and then the trucks can get to the factories that much more quickly. But now, in this much more tech-based kind of movable world, where particularly some people in some industries can choose to effectively more live live more or less wherever they uh, like, uh, there's a big argument for say that cities are competing on kind of different things. They're competing on whether or not they're a kind of green and pleasant and livable place to live. So people don't necessarily want to you know, have an apartment 
near to a kind of road link. They want to have an apartment near to, I don't know, a canal side where there's lots of kind of, you know, outdoor cafes and things like that. And the kind of parallel thing to this is that, you know, cycling and walking used to be very much seen as a kind of left-leaning thing. It was once something that the kind of Greens would want to do. Mm -hmm. But now a lot of the politicians who are proposing these kind of things tend to be from the right because they're seeing this as a kind of pro-business way to move. And it's a very interesting change. Fascinating. All right, so where can people grab your book? Um, it is available from um, April the 4th from bookstores and from all the usual uh, internet uh, outlets. So thank you very much, Peter Walker. The book is available on April 4th, <laughs> How Cycling Can Save the World. This has been Technotopia, podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Thanks for listening.